So this week, I think it was this week or this past week, Apple became the first company to reach a valuation of a trillion dollars. <laughs> now, of course, that could change in the blink of an eye, and the, the value could drop below that mark again, but that's still a pretty significant thing. And I'm glad of it uh, because that means that company should be around for a while, a good while, and I like my Apple products. In fact, my PC even feels better. I mean, my Apple uh, even feels better than the old PC products. I just love them. Now, others are glad uh, for that news of it becoming a trillion-dollar company because uh, they bought Apple stock way back when it was a no-name, and they've made a great deal of money from that investment. Now, you've heard, haven't you? I, I know I have. But you've heard people say something like this. Boy, I wish I'd have bought some of that stock way back then. And then they might follow it up with something like, uh, oh, they'd say wistfully, if only I'd known. <laughs> and, and what they're really saying when they say something like that is, is they wished that they had known the future before it had happened. And if they had known that future, they would have bought as much of that Apple stock as they could have afforded. I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, but what then? <laughs> I mean, if you had known and if you had bought it and, and you are now immensely wealthy, well, maybe you wouldn't be the kind, loving, faithful, committed follower of Jesus Christ that you are today. I, I know, most people think that that kind of money wouldn't change them. But life experience teaches us a different lesson. That money on that level almost always changes people and not for the better. Maybe you'd be the rare exception. I don't know. But what does it matter? You don't know, I don't know either, and there's nothing we can do about it. That, I don't know what you call it, but... That desire to know the future is pretty common if you think about it. Not just when it comes to knowing what stocks are going to do, but in other things. I mean, I've heard people say when a loved one died suddenly that they wished they had known. If they had, they reasoned that they would have treated him or her better or spent more time uh, with them. They would have not taken them for granted or they would have appreciated them even more. All of which they should have done anyway, right? <laughs> Well, it's normal that we feel that way when something like that happens. We all do. We, we, we know we're going to miss that person we love. But really, didn't we already know that all people die, some suddenly? Would really knowing the date really make any difference? I mean, really? I mean, there are those who do know the date, at least roughly what it is. A loved one like Ann's uncle was diagnosed with a terminal disease and given months to live, and he lasted a couple of weeks. When that happens, what do we do? When they get that diagnosis, we, we spend as much time with them as we can. But, but we always wish, even then, don't we, that we had done even more? Yeah, I, I think we do. And, and we have to realize something. Knowing that death is on the doorstep colors the relationship that we have with that person. I mean, that's not wrong. It just is. But if we knew the date of all of our relationships when they would die, or even just some of them, wouldn't it color them too? Wouldn't we miss some level of spontaneity and joy and even 
freedom in the relationship because such knowledge would cast such a long shadow. It would probably, would, it would affect how we treated them, but not always, maybe for the best. Maybe most of the time it wouldn't. It wouldn't affect it, our relationship in a positive way. Maybe, for example, we would fail to confront someone when they needed to be confronted because, well, we knew when they were going to die. See, that knowledge would affect things, but how often would it add to things instead of subtract from it? And then, well, it's terrible to admit it, but wouldn't we, because of our sinful nature, wouldn't we be tempted to say, well, old John or Aunt Sally, that's a long way off. I'll get around to seeing them at some point. Instead of treasuring what you have, you'd neglect it. And who knows how much damage that would cause. And in a sense, sometimes the truth is, we already do that with the elderly. We neglect them. We don't know their date. Life is so busy, we, we just do. Maybe, though, after all of that, maybe, though, we need to change our faith. Thank you. Could it be that not knowing the date of someone's death or anything else, not knowing the future makes us more conscious of time? I think it does. For, for the only time that we have any control over is the now. And so, so we're prompted, since we don't know what's coming, to redeem the time, or at least we should try to. See, not knowing the future forces, forces us, I think, to live in the present. You know, you can't change the past, obviously, right? We know that. We might wish we could, but you can't. But you can change the future, but to do that, you change the future, you have to do it by what you're doing in the present. Don't you think that that helps us maybe live better in the now, to have a, a positive impact on our future? Because we don't know exactly what's coming. Well, in any case, <laughs> whether you think that or not, that seems to be God's design, right? You and I don't know the future, what the future holds, so we have to live in the present. And yet, having said that, there are some things about the future which God, in his wisdom, wants us to know. He who knows the end from the beginning, who knows all things, has revealed certain parts of the future to us. For example... Uh, God promised Abraham the land of Canaan for him and his descendants. So, you know, when Abraham died, he owned only a little graveyard which he bought with his own money. But it was God's promise. It was God's promise to Abraham and his people and Israel and all of Abraham's children. They needed to know that. That promise was meant for them to guide them and to affect the way they lived in the world. And for us today, I, I think we need to know that too. For For as long as there is an Israel and as long as there is a land, it is God's purpose for them to have that land. All politics aside. (laughs) Then, before God made his promise to Abraham, he, he told of the seed which was to come who would defeat our ancient enemy and suffer in the process. He made a promise. And it was clarified and expanded upon until the seed came, born of a virgin who took away the sin of the world. Humankind needed to know that God had a plan. 
And, and those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we need to know that he's coming back again someday at a date and a time we don't know, so we have to be watchful. And it's good for us to know that. And we know, too, that the dead will be raised again, some to life, some to condemnation. And we know that this sin-scarred world will be perfected and that God Almighty himself will live with us. We need to know that, so God told us. Knowing those things has the power to positively impact our lives and, and the lives of those around us if, if we act on them. So God shows himself to be good by telling us what we need to know and even some future things that he knows we should know. So today, what we're going to do, we're going to consider one of those things which God has revealed about the future, which in his wisdom and goodness he has deemed that we need to know, and that is that the church is forever. So like us, the church did not exist in eternity past. But like those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, who, who put our trust in that atoning sacrifice, the church will, like us, exist in all eternity to come. You and I need to know that. We need to know that not only are we part of something now, something that is bigger than we are, but, but being a part of God's church means that we are a part of something that will never end. We're a part of something that is eternal. And we need to know that. We need to know that the investments that we make in the church matter both now and forever. And knowing this truth can positively impact your life. It can help you to invest your life where it should be invested. It will help you to encourage others, like your children, like your loved ones, to do the same kind of thing. Knowing this truth honestly sets you free. Knowing it enables you better to live life as is meant to be lived, better than someone who doesn't know this truth. Now, you may not do what you know you should do, and you're responsible for that. But you know, and you will know at the end of this, so you can choose the right path. Knowing that the church will last forever, along with the knowledge of knowing it belongs to Jesus Christ, as we've said many times throughout our study on the church, it ought to affect us in every way, even the way we think and talk about the church. Because the church is forever. Now, I, I want to show you that from the scriptures. Uh, I, I think most of us already that are here know this, and, and we accept it, but it's going to be good for us to state that clearly anyway. And yet I have to deal with something first. Uh, see, there's a particular uh, theology, uh, that is a certain understanding of how God works in the world, which many good and committed Christians have embraced. And it's called dispensationalism. You don't really need to remember that name. Uh, but the premise of it is, is that God worked and continues to work in different ways at different times in human history, right? And so without going all the, into all the details, they believe that the church age is now and that we live in the church age. 
But they also believe that that age will end when Christ returns. But I don't want you to be confused by that. Because they would say that the church still exists. It just has been relocated from here on earth and is now in heaven. You see, they too believe that the church is forever. So so how do we know that? (laughs) I mean, how do we know that the church is forever? (laughs) Well, we can know it. One way we can know it is by looking into the future as God has revealed it to us in his word. So Revelation has some uh, interesting texts that we're going to look at uh, now. And the first one is found in Revelation 19, beginning in verse uh, 7. And this is what we read there. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear, and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. See, this is a match that begins in eternity. After Christ is returned, after he's set up his kingdom, that's when the lamb and his bride will wed, when the long betrothal will be consummated. And if all you were to have were this text right here, it would be natural to wonder just who or what is this bride which is spoken of here. So Revelation has more to tell us about that. Chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and he will be, they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And if there's any doubt of that, in the same chapter, a little further on, in verses 9 and 10, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And so the bride is the new Jerusalem. It's the holy city which comes down from heaven. And all of that, are are you with me? All of that is to reveal truth to us. Most of us know it. I understand that. But in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was a city where God dwelt. It's the place where he had his throne. He he dwelt with the people of Israel there as much as he could then, for sin always impeded that relationship. But in that new Jerusalem with his people, he will be there unimpeded by sin, and he will be with us forever. Now, maybe you're sitting there, though, and you're kind of wondering, you're scratching your head, and you're saying, well, what what does this have to do with the church? And so I just wanted to ask you, stay with me for, for a little bit, because very near the end of the book of Revelation, we're given a hint of how the New Jerusalem and the church are related. So we turn to chapter 22 and verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty uh, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Do you know the only time when that invitation to come can be given? 
and mean anything. The only time it can be a real invitation is now, before eternity begins. And so the Spirit is here now, inviting people to come. And you and I, if we're faithful Christians and Christians everywhere in our world, they're inviting people to come. And, and so is the bride. The bride is here now. The bride is inviting people to come now. The bride is in our midst. The bride is the church. Uh, again, maybe you're sitting there and saying, okay, maybe, maybe, Pastor Larry, maybe that's what this is all about, but, but I'd like to see it a little bit more clearly. And, and, and um, I think most of you already know this, but, but you'd like, maybe you'd like me to show you a little bit more clearly in the Scriptures. That. So we're going to make it clear to you, I hope, in just a minute. Uh, but I want you to understand I didn't start there. I began the way I did first because I, I want you to understand that the bride is both in eternity future and is also somehow now. It's in the now. But in this now, she isn't yet all that she will be. You get that? The time will come when she will be perfected. This is at a future day. When the wedding is going to take place in the kingdom. But right now, she's still being readied and still being prepared. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go back, in a sense, in time. We're going to leave the future depiction, descriptions found in Revelation to confirm what most of you already know about the church. We'll see something which happened in the past that is really quite astounding when you stop to think about it. We're going back to the book of Ephesians where Paul is talking about husbands and wives and more. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Amen. If I could see something right now, I just want to stop for a moment and say this. This ought to be the focus in your marriage. Your focus in your marriage. It's a tall order, but it's what God Almighty calls you to do if you're a husband. Your job is not to evaluate your wife. It's to love her with all of your might. And every one of us fails. But that's our job. And we need to ask ourselves daily, what am I doing to meet that obligation to love my wife as Christ loved the church and died for it? And ladies, um, you, uh, we're not turning there, but you have a different obligation. And I tell you what, I'd love to leave that statement right there and let you figure out what that obligation is. Uh, so I don't have to say it, but, but I can't do that. <laughs> So you have a different obligation, and it's called, don't hate me for this, it's called submission. And, and that word is taking on a meaning in our culture that is absolutely not biblical. People think of submission as somehow beneath them, and they forget that Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, submitted himself to the Father and submitted himself to death and humiliation. For you, I think you can think of submission this way, as looking out for the best interest of your husband and doing all you can to encourage him. 
Sometimes you're going to have to confront your husband because if you guys are anything like I am, you do stupid stuff, and your wife has to tell you about it and help you get back on the right track, right? Uh, but when you confront your husband, it's you're going to have to do it. You, you ought to do it in love, and you ought to be doing it because you're seeking his good. Now, you start there, ladies, and God will teach you uh, more if there is more. Anyway, back to our topic. Uh, verse 28 tells us more about what Christ did for the church. Uh, he uh, came to make her holy, cleansing her and washing her with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Christ is in that process now, making the church all that it should be so that it can be his forever. And so you already see this picture of the church as the bride of Christ. It's already coming clear as you read these texts. But if you jump down to verse 31 and 32, which we're going to do right now, you're going to see something that I think really is truly amazing. Verse 31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now that much we already know. We're familiar with that. Um, it's in a lot of wedding services, and many of you have been through that, right? It's the next part that ought to take our breath away. This is a profound mystery, verse 20, 32 says. Talking about the husband leaving the wife, and listen to what he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Do you, you know what that means? Do you, do you understand what Paul has just said? The son left heaven. He left his father so he could be united with the church, his bride. Just as a husband leaves his family he grew up in to be united with his wife. And the two become one. The church will be one with Christ. I don't know much about you. I just think, what a wonder that is. How wonderful that is, that he should love us so. To leave heaven, to leave his father, to come here to die on a cross, to pay for our sins, to work in our lives, to change us and to make us and to remake us into his image so that we could become the church, his bride, whom he will wed and make his forever. See, when you invest your life in the church, that is what you're investing in. Something so beautiful, so wonderful, so, so beyond anything that we could ever think or imagine that it has to be pictured to us, illustrated for us. And no single image can capture the whole truth. The church is the body of Christ. It's the new Jerusalem, the holy city where God lives with his people forever and ever. It's the temple of the living God made of living stones, which is us who believe in him, built together with all those who've trusted in Christ. It's the priesthood of all believers. And most amazingly of all, we're the bride of the Son of God. Why Bible church? Is a local expression of that. There are many other churches like that in our area. And thank God we're not the only one. There are others. But we are one of them. And what you do here matters. It matters now and it matters 
for all eternity. And let me tell you this right now. If for some reason you cannot invest yourself here, then go find a place where you can do what God has called you to do. If you don't belong here, I mean, we'll love you. We'll keep you. But we want you to be where God wants you to be. If you can't invest here, well, you must be somewhere where you can. The church is forever. It's now. But it's not yet all that it will be. That day is coming when it will be all that it was meant to be. The church is forever. Now there's one more thing that we need to look at in order to understand the church, I think, a little bit better. And it has to do with both its eternal character and its present form. And for that, the text that we're going to look at, uh, we're going to turn to right now is in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And what's happening here is the writer draws a contrast between the church and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And this is what he writes speaking about Israel. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and a storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded that if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That paints a vivid picture of the relationship between God and humankind before the cross. Yes, God loved his people then just as he does now. But the veil still remained. That almost infinite gulf between God and us caused by our sins still stood. It still was between God and his people. For only in Christ is it taken away. Without the Holy Spirit in us, uh, it was how God had to present himself to people. It's only by the Spirit that we can see God as he really is. And the Spirit could not dwell in us until the cross and the resurrection. And if you're not familiar with that truth and you're confused about that, you come and see me and I'll help you with that. But until the cross and the resurrection, the Spirit would come on a person, empower them, and leave. But since that time, the Spirit lives inside of the believer and never leaves. And only when we see Christ as Lord and Savior can we see God as he really is. For anyone who's seen Jesus has seen the Father. Before the cross, the temple was necessary. You understand that. It not only prefigured what Christ would do, but the people of God needed it in their lives so they might try to steer a straight course. I believe the temple was there to help them understand, uh, help them come to faith. I mean, it showed them over and over again they couldn't stand on their own. And it's by faith and faith alone that the old people in the Old Testament were saved too. But the temple still stood And the way, the only way was not yet open to the holiest of all places because Christ hasn't come. And if you and I had lived back then, that 
is how we would have had to have lived too if we would have followed God. The temple was necessary for that. It is not in us. Because Christ has come. The son left the father. He's come for his bride. He's perfecting her. He's getting her ready. And already we can see something of what she'll be like, especially when the writer says in verses 22 and following, but you, that's us, We've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we are already participating in the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to a joyful assembly. We've come to the church made up of all of those who put their faith in God. We have come to God who is the judge of all and who has accepted us and made us perfect because of the blood of his Son. Because of our sinfulness, you understand. We can't bear the weight of that glory all the time. We're not able yet to see God as he actually is. Because if we were to see God as he really were right now, if we were like we are now and saw him in his fullness, it would kill us. It would be an awfully glorious death. But it would kill us. But he allows us glimpses. From time to time, he shows us pictures, a kind of a peak, an image, a shadow of what's coming. Sometimes it's fleeting, sometimes lingering, but not yet abiding. Still, we taste again God's goodness. It's like the scent of good food cooking. We have an idea of what's to come. For me, I have to tell you, I tasted that goodness when 60 or so pastors were at a prayer summit together and we saw, stood around the communion table, the Lord's table, singing a cappella without a single instrument other than our voices and we sung to the glory of God and what a gloriful thing that was. And, and, And I've experienced other things like that here, not always, but from time to time. I've experienced him here, in this building, in this room, with you. When God reached down somehow and touched my heart, and I knew he was here, that he was speaking to me. Maybe, maybe you've seen it in the sunrise, or you've heard the heavenly voice of a message has spoken into your heart. Maybe, maybe you, like, a, like me, on a Sunday morning, you found that your heart was set free, that you worshipped the as though you were before the throne of God, which you were, you know, and you still are. But again, that experience of God was there for you in a new way. Church lasts forever, but it's here now. Every time you come here, or every time you go to your home church, that this isn't it, or any time you go to any church anywhere that belongs to the living God, You see, what you do is you put yourself in a place where the eternal God might break into your life at any moment. You've come to a place where God might come to you afresh and anew. And every time you invest in his church, you're doing something eternal, 
something which lasts forever. You honor Jesus Christ because it's his church. You do something now that matters, but, but it doesn't stop. It keeps on forever. Last week, Ann and I, our daughter Adeline went to see, uh, we went to Oklahoma. We went there to see our son Bo, who's in the Air Force. And uh, we went to see him with our daughter Addie, who wanted to make sure she got a chance to get out and see him. We went out there to see him before he gets deployed. It was a really good time. Uh, the, the only thing missing was our oldest son, Earl, wasn't there with us. And we got there on Thursday afternoon and we let ourselves into his house because he was at the base. And there we were in Oklahoma in Bo's house by ourselves. And then Bo came a bit later. He was with us when he was done at the base. It was good to see him. It, it was so good to hug him and touch him. That night we went to the Cattleman's Cafe for what, what I think arguably was the best steak I have ever had. But, but maybe any steak would have tasted just as good anywhere else because we were all together. We spent all the time that we could together. And when we first arrived, you know, we never thought much about leaving. But almost before we knew it, that time had come. Our planes didn't leave until around noon, noon but Bo had to leave at 9 a.m. And so then he was gone. And we were in the house again by ourselves. And then we left too. But there's a day coming for all of us who know Jesus Christ. There is a day coming when we will be together again forever and ever, never to depart. There is a day coming when there are no more goodbyes. In the meantime, we're going to enjoy every good thing that God has given us. And we're going to invest in the church. We're going to put our time, our money, our talent, our hearts, our lives into the church, into something that's greater than us, something that will last forever, something that is here now, but not in its fullness yet, but which sometimes flashes its glory upon us. If you thought that the, build, the church was just a building or just a group of people, think again. It is the bride of Jesus Christ and will be so forever. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for revealing a truth to us that we need to know. Uh, Lord, we know we can look at the church so often and, and we, we can see all of our humanity stamped all over it, Lord. And we need to be told, because sometimes we don't see it, that the church is yours, that you're the one who builds it and it belongs to you, and that it's something that will last forever. And how grateful we are every time you show us that when we once again hear, hear you speak, know your presence, 
experience some of the glory of that which will be ours, which is yet to come. We thank you for that. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to live in a way that honors you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.